This is the BBC. This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK. Enjoy the freedom and flexibility to preserve your stay now and pay only when you arrive at the hotel in case your plans change with Webjet. Hello and welcome to A History of Ideas, a new series that asks some of the biggest questions we ask ourselves. These questions don't have one answer, they have many answers. So each week I'll be joined by a group of thinkers from philosophy and the arts, from science, economics and theology, to try and answer them. <laughs> this week I'm asking, how do we tell right from wrong? I'm joined by the philosopher Angie Hobbs, the theologian Giles Fraser, the neuropsychologist Paul Brooks and the lawyer Harry Potter. Starting with you, Harry. Well, as a lawyer, I'm particularly interested in the relationship between legality and morality. To what extent should the law be morally based and to what extent should it actually try to enforce or reflect the moral standards of a particular culture? So are you suggesting that sometimes morality and legality can be at odds? I think they're far apart in many ways. Adultery may well be immoral, it's not illegal. And, of course, morality varies from culture to culture and from time to time. So what you were saying, as I understand, is that the ideas of right and wrong in in law have been constantly revised. Well, they are being constantly revised because the law changes. But it is certainly the case that there is no necessary conjunction between the standards of morality, a particular claim, and legality, although they tend to overlap to a large extent. What is particularly difficult now is that whereas a legal system would basically reflect the predominant culture of a society in a multicultural society, that's much more diffuse. Paul Brooks, can you tell us where you come from in this one? My background is in neuropsychology, and I'm interested to broaden the question to the general context of decision-making and how does the brain make decisions, and in particular, moral decisions. I mean, fundamentally, the brain is a decision-making device. The basic question for the brain is what next? What next in the next second, in the next minute, in the next day, for the rest of one's life? How does it do that? Well, it does it in unconscious ways and in deliberative, self-reflective ways. So we have these automatic decision-making processes. Then we have the deliberative, reflective processes, But in between that, we've got this sort of intuitive level where intuitions are at the level of consciousness or they they enter into consciousness, but they're not articulated beliefs. They're gut feelings, if you like. I think there's a lot of evidence that a lot of the moral decisions that we take are based on those kinds of gut feelings and that we only rationalise them, we only articulate the reasons after the event, after we've taken a decision. Have there been any experiments done on the brain which show that the brain reacts in a particular way if it is doing wrong? Yes, there are some brain imaging studies that show the brain reacts in a particular way to to what it thinks is wrong, to particular moral dilemmas, for example. So um, people are set up with a moral dilemma story. They have to choose one of two actions or one of three actions. And if they are required to visualise a morally wrong action, then that sort of triggers all kinds of emotional reactions in the brain. Angie Hobbs, where do you come from? Okay, from a philosophical perspective, there's a key distinction between ethical systems which are based on actions and the two there would be deontological ethics coming from the Greek word deon to do with obligation, duty, what you must not do, what you're permitted to do. 
the Ten Commandments is an example, Kant's categorical imperative is another example. Then you've got you've got ethical systems based on the consequences of actions, the greatest good for the greatest number in Jeremy Bentham is a, a classic case of that. And then you've got this third tradition which is based on the agent, the doer of the action rather than the act itself, which asks, how should I live and what sort of person should I be? Jars, as a theologian, how do you go about telling right from wrong? My mind was changed on this, transformed in the last few years where I've worked with army officers who were going to Afghanistan and before that to Iraq and had to make incredibly quick life-or-death decisions about shooting and so forth. And one of the things I realised when I was talking to them is all our traditional theories of ethics require an enormous amount of time to reflect upon them and actually they don't work on the battlefield. It's absolutely fascinating. What really works on the battlefield is are you a good character? What is the nature of your character? And if you act out of your character, those are the things that actually work. And so I'm much more interested in this thing called virtue ethics, which is, it's not about the ethical work, it's not about the deeds that you do, but about who you are as a person. So if somebody's drifting down the bottom of a road and you shoot them thinking that he's got hand grenades or going to come and blow you up, that's OK if you're a good person, even though he no, might No, no, be, it's not OK if you're a, a good shepherd. person. So no, no, that's not, that's not what it is. The question is, how do we make sure... So the sort of... Rule-based ethics that we often use is, as uh, so we have sort of deontological ethics, loads and loads and loads of rules. But actually, you can't look up the rule and then fire. That's not how it can work. Nor can you know what the consequences of your action are going to be in a sort of utilitarian, consequentialist way because you don't know. So actually, when you're asking someone to make a decision in you know, a quarter of a second to shoot or not to shoot, where does that come from? It comes out of that person's character rather than the sort of decision itself. And we're hoping that, as it were, this is very roughly put, a good person approximates to good decisions. Yeah, but that's sort of what I said, Giles, to be fair. What I said was uh, maybe somebody's drifting down a track in Afghanistan and your good character thinks this man is going to do us all harm. Yeah. I will, in that quarter of a second, yeah. shoot. Yes. Now, he was wrong. It's a shepherd looking for his sheep. Yeah, he right. made a mistake, yeah. Absolutely. So the whole thing is you can't distinguish, ultimately distinguish, between the action that's done with the right intention that has a bad consequence. And that is part of the absolute problem of the sorts of warfare that we have at the moment. I want to go back to you, Harry, when you said in your introductory remarks that, let me put it my way, universal laws, are they becoming more difficult now that we're becoming a much more mixed society? I don't think they yet are. I think our legal tradition is sufficiently strong that although our society has changed dramatically in the last hundred years, probably more so than any other century, the legal system in this country is very unlikely to accommodate the vagaries of all those groups. But it is interesting how one relates it then to the the norms, the beliefs, the understandings of what is moral and what should be legal in, in other cultures. You know when um, when the lawyers have those tabs that come down in front of yes. them? I didn't know this until fairly recently, that they're a representation of the tablets of stone for the Ten Commandments, and they're a, they're a biblical thing. Well, I was completely unaware of that. But it's, uh, <laughs> <laughs> surprising what you pick up on your thinking. Now, just, I want to ask, <laughs> and this, this business of... Change that Heiner has referred to, and that we all know about, mm. massive change mm. in our society. Have the philosophers kept up with that? Has more slipperiness and relativity come into focus? 
I mean, it's not entirely new, actually. David Hume in the 18th century was saying that morality is basically a matter of taste, just as he thought that beauty was a matter of taste, so he thought morality was a matter of taste. Is there more of this now? I think in the last 30 or 40 years, there's actually a move away from rather lazy uh, acceptance of cultural subjectivism for the kinds of reasons that Harry was talking about. Because we are so much more multicultural, and I, I think that's a good thing, I'm in favour of that, but we're now really faced with the practicalities of differences, occasionally clashes in different moral viewpoints. And it's no longer enough to just sort of lie back and be very cool and just say, this is all a matter of cultural relativism. We have to work these things through. But surely, Giles, before we come in, a lot of people might still today expect that one of the functions of the church is to, to tell, tell you us what how to do. To, to, no, to tell us how to live, yes, what to do. Well, I think the people who are best at that are probably novelists these days. I think uh, it's not the philosophers. I think the philosophers have given up on that and became sort of professional problem solvers. You're ducking it, though. What about and, the church? Well, I mean, the church <laughs> does model a certain way of life. That's absolutely... It tries to model a certain way of life, and it does that by referring us back to a whole set of narratives and stories about what God looks like. And this is intended to say that our moral decision-making has to sit within this much bigger framework. Now, I actually think that sometimes the idea that the church becomes this finger-wagging moral institution is actually entirely unhelpful. But what is not unhelpful, it seems to me, is the idea that we have to set human life in a larger picture, in a teleology, about what we're for. I think it's not irrelevant that the people who are really best at doing morality and understanding human beings and each other are probably these days where morality is best discussed is in novels and not by theologians or by philosophers, or by lawyers, or indeed by neuroscientists. But they don't tell you what to do in novels, do they? Where but they the increase your sensitivity. This is the whole point. If we think morality is about being told what to do, then no. But if we're talking about whether, and I come back to this whole bit character, if it actually enriches your idea of what it is to be a human being, enriches your sensitivity to the other, that in itself is the process of moral formation that's really important. It's not about being told what to do. OK, well, for the rest of we each of you is going to take on this subject. Can you give us some idea of your starting point, starting with you, Harry Potter? Uh, well, I would be particularly interested in investigating the relationship between legality and morality, to what extent the law does reflect the morality of our culture and to what extent it should. Giles Fraser? I think I do want to talk about whether it's actually not in the traditional places that we get our moral sensitivity from these days, that we get it from very, very different places, not from philosophers, not from church, and we're in a completely different environment for our moral decision-making. I think the novelists are the people. Taking up Giles's challenge, I want to start from Ivan's challenge in Dostoevsky's uh, The Brothers Karamazov. If you could create paradise on earth for all time just by torturing this one innocent child, would you do it? Ivan says he doesn't want any part of that paradise. I want to really explore that. And as part of the process, I want to be exploring something Paul has touched on, which is what is the role of intuitionism or something we might even call conscience? Is, can those terms have any meaningful substance to them or are they just a cover for lazy thinking and prejudice and, and bias? Paul, and you? I want to look at the, the broader question of the, how the brain takes decisions and particularly how that applies to moral decisions. 
I want to look at, in particular at the way that uh, intuitions work and how emotions inform intuitions. And I also think I want to explore the way that those systems malfunction sometimes, because I think that gives us a glimpse into how they kind of carve nature at the joints and it shows how those systems work when they do work. Well, thank you all very much. Thank you, Paul Brooks, Angie Hobbs, Giles Fraser and Harry Potter. And good luck for the rest of the week. <laughs>